0: Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Jason Watkins. Jason was born in Shropshire and is an actor best known for his diverse performances in TV shows including Being Human, Trollied, W1A and The Lost Honor of Christopher Jeffries the role that won him the BAFTA TV Award for Best Actor. He's also had a memorable role in the film series Nativity and starred as Prime Minister Harold Wilson in The Crown. Jason lives in London with his wife Clara and his father of five children. Well, Jason Watkins, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Very nice to be here.
1: Thank you for asking me. How are you? I'm very good. I'm yes. I'm I'm here in my kitchen. Uh, just so this is can visualise me if they, they so wish. Uh, I can hear my dog Georgie barking in the front room, but he's all right. So yeah, yeah, I'm great.
0: So Jason, one of the aims of this podcast is to encourage conversations around death and dying and bereavement. What we know from our listeners is that they find it helpful, they find comfort in hearing other people's experiences of loss and grief. So can I start, Jason, by asking if you can tell me about a bereavement you've experienced in your life?
1: Well, yes, I mean, many of your listeners may know, um, and many don't, um, but we've spoken about the loss of our daughter, Maud, to um, sepsis 12 years ago now. And, yes, I mean, she she died of sepsis. She died on, it's almost Victorian, really, in a way. She died on New Year's Day, unexpectedly died in the night. We discovered her on the morning New Year's Day. Uh, and we only found out after the subsequent term inquest into her death. As there was an inquest because we'd taken her to A&E two days in a row and been discharged on each occasion and the, her dying in the night was, was seen to be unusual which of course it was and, um, but there was no culpability um, and it was the diagnosis was sepsis which was happening below and behind the presented symptoms of pneumonia and uh, 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 tummy bug. so yeah so that's um, completely turned our lives upside down and uh, um, and probably is why i'm talking to you today you know it's it's given this whole new there's nothing good to come out of it it's i don't want to say what what has happened there's i can sort of make it non-relative all i can say is it's terrible that we lost Maud. but i can also say we've been doing so much work for charities and for the bereaved and for sepsis awareness and child bereavement the uk and other charities so that's happened which is given us a purpose perhaps beyond just our work uh um so yeah that's our story um uh, and it's 12 years ago and i suppose it's worth mentioning that by the time the podcast comes out we would have shown our documentary that we made this year about what happened to you Lord, um which is about trying to have a conversation about death and death in of children yeah. which is incredibly difficult so we're meeting at a perfect moment jason that we can talk about having responded to your question you know about having a dialogue about death and about how difficult it is to talk about it we can also say and it's very important to talk about it. Uh, very important to share our stories and i think this is what our hope is for the documentary that by sharing our story, we give comfort and context to others, show that they're not alone and to give an idea to people who have not lost children, to have an idea what it might be like and what we as bereaved parents um appreciate. So yeah, that's our story, I suppose. And I also know people who have lost cancer as well. So a very good friend of ours who was in a group of I would imagine this echoes across a lot of people that there's a group isn't there of when you're usually your eldest child goes to school primary store you make friends with those parents and that's what we've done and we're still close friends we've had gosh 10 more actually they were very close term my daughter Bessie is now 15 nearly 16 and, and we lost one of those who so who was six foot five and an architect one of the most wonderful people that you'll ever likely to meet died of cancer so you know that's uh, that's very hard and um, you know, uh, trying to help his widow and two boys you know um, you can't do that sort of thing on your own can you? You, you you can't you have to have friends and you have to have other family members and other family members of course going to find things incredibly difficult too they're trying to put things into context but yeah any dialogue about loss and the absence of someone and the comfort that that can bring. However, you know, clumsy it might be. Now, we we, we always say, Clara and I, and, and when I say we always say it, it's not like a mantra. It's whenever we're asked we give the same answer because it's so important, is that, you know, if someone dies, it's nice to mention, even if you do it badly, or you feel they've done it badly, or you think, oh God, they're going to be, yeah, I've reminded them of their dead child. Well, you know, she's with us all the time. We're not having a great day because we're not thinking about our child. We might be having a great day and laughing, all those things, because we're able to accommodate our child and have her with us. We're in in our spirit. So we're then able to to have good days, which is important to say that when you've lost somebody, even in the first few terrible days of trauma, you know, you will at some point come out of that, if that's the right word, or you things will change such that you are able to have good days in your life. And you, you should be able to do that. But these sort of thinking, oh gosh, I don't want to bring them down because I'm going to mention your child. Because, you know, and that may be the case in, in, in other it's not necessarily just with children, you know. You want to know that your person you lost existed, that they counted, and, and also that really simplistically that they were there. Partly the documentary is a way of celebrating and, and reminding everybody and ourselves, selfishly, that she was with us. She
0: counted. You mentioned those difficulties around conversations. So after Maud died, what were some of the difficulties you and your family faced?
1: Well, I mean, we fundamentally, in the first few days, you are um, in a really deep hole. I mean, we didn't get out of bed, really. And when you get out of bed, your legs are wobbly you feel like the when we first went outside, you felt like everything was was in cotton wool. You know, that saying where everything's wrapped in cotton wool, you're not really hearing properly, and you know, the world's sort of subdued. I mean, if anybody's had an injury and had painkillers, you know, you've got a loss of them, it's a bit like that. I've had sort of knee surgery and stuff, and had some pretty, you know, heavy TC painkillers, and you feel a bit like that, you're really foggy. There are feelings obviously of desperation and confusion and wanting the clock to turn back and time run through again and it not happen. There's guilt, of course, and there's a parent to your feeling that you should have done better, you should have spotted the signs, you should have known more about sepsis, you should have asked them, Could it be sepsis? you know. Which again is 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 not being fair on oneself, should know, how could you you know, I'm not a medical person and the medical people did the best they could you know at that time with the information that they had systems of care they had in place um but what is left with um yeah feeling of absence fundamentally that's the word i used earlier on it's something that was there before is no longer there it's very hard physically in a physical way um you know i remember more being you know um Know, she to taken in a, in the special ambulance away from us, and that was very hard. And so, the actual physical absence and the lack of sensation of holding hands and things like that is, is no no longer exists. And you you, you know you're wondering, your hand isn't tingling, but there's an absence in your hand. They're really really hard things to negotiate, and you know, you're just crying all the time, of course, and trying to support clara she was so i mean everyone's devastated but you know she she uh it's unfair to go into too much detail but i mean you know she was really desperate and like there were occasions when i was really worried and i had to help you know make her feel a lot better than she was feeling that way um uh so you know there's those things and there are you're the bestiest man who, who actually found Maud. She came into our room and said, "I can't wake her because they shared a room." So you're trying to help that person through while while yourself struggling. So it, it was a really uh, desperate time, and uh, was no money wasn't working. You know, as a self employed person, you know you don't get the benefits of employed, which is which I know is in not all corporations do, but most do, and you know there are there have been moves, and there's legislation now that companies should give their employees at least two weeks paid leave um, when you lose a child however if you're self-employed you know, oh I haven't put that uh, extra few grand away because in case my child dies because I've never thought about it yeah um, so that was an issue and that's difficult and then you just learn and you just have to learn to try and find a way through and one of the things the principal thing was talking to other people who had lost children and I continue to do that on a sort of you know if I know somebody like I spoke to someone last week and I'm speaking to someone this week who knows when I get older and I stop acting well not who knows I certainly will be doing that I'll be doing more of that probably as you know I get older and lose even more hair that I'll be um, you know helping out with people probably training as well and doing all that um but fundamentally sharing your story so the people that i've been speaking to i can't say who that is but you know they're in the state there's only been a few weeks they're in the place that i've just described so they're looking at me saying i know exactly how you feel i'll tell you about how we felt and they'll be thinking that is how we feel and i'll also say you know that it's like a huge big red dot in front of you in the grief that you're staring at it's claustrophobic and desperate and in time although it stays in the center of your vision it does get smaller and you're able to look around the outside look after your other children see the world and laugh at a joke or read a book or you know watch the television so i can say things like that and because we feel the same way having lost our child we are on the same journey that you're more likely to be believed, or you know you will be believed because you you're being open and honest with them, and of course it's not going to be easy. Um, it's a treacherous pathway, but it's not in, un, unnavigable. You know you can do it. So sharing stories is essential, and that really did help us. And we had you know other help as well. You know a bit of help. I mean, I didn't. <laughs> I'm saying all this. My therapy was talking and listening to other people's stories and stuff. You know, I was on the other end. I've swapped around that in a way uh, that I received that context and compassion from parents who'd lost their children, whether that was through the slow group. This is, by the way, Survival the Loss of the World. Um, that group is a group of parents, and some of them lost their children 20 years ago, some six months ago, whatever. So I was able to find context and comfort from hearing their stories and comfort from me being able to express mine to them so i'm now in a way swapped around in that i am telling my story and for those newly bereaved are as i've just described you know they they're getting the comfort from that however you know i'm still a bereaved parent so i have to make sure i look after myself which i in the documentary which i hope people will see uh you know you realise, hang about, I'm not actually looking after myself here, too busy helping other people, which is grand, but, you know, it's it's still a a continuing process.
0: And I think just for anybody listening who... Is grieving the loss of a child. Um, you know, you've mentioned one organization there, but um, you know, there's many others, and 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 I think um, you know, it can be really helpful and beneficial to speak to others who've also lost a child. And the child bereavement network or a UK organization, you know, is maybe may a starting point as well, but I'm sure people will have local organizations as well to them. I just wanted to ask Jason, I wanted to go back a little bit, you mentioned this before but so we know that everybody experiences grief in their own way and that means that even within families people can experience grief differently how did you and your family navigate that
1: yeah that's a really good question and um and also just uh, before i answer that i just also mentioned the child bereavement uk which is which is a charity that i support as well that UK sepsis trust and that's a good starting point if we're looking for starting points um, but yeah well it's difficult because if you are grieving there's certain things that I think that you learn and people do grieve in different ways of course in different in different as, well as different rates but I don't think there is a rate weirdly but you only learn that as it happens to you and I think the key for me is to listen to yourself and your feelings and your I mean, as actors, we kind of do that a bit. You know, we're always sort of monitoring in a way. (laughs) It's an actor's curse in a way. Monitoring and observing your own feelings because we use them in our work. So we had the benefit of that in some ways. It's letting yourself, listen to yourself and let yourself do whatever you feel like doing. I mean, you know, within reason, but, you know, because the seven stages of grief, I don't quite subscribe to it. I understand. I can, you know, you go, okay, there's acceptance, whatever, you know, there's sort of trauma whatever they are, you know, and then acceptance, you know, well, okay, okay, fine. But I prefer to have this idea that you kind of observe what you're feeling and give yourself a break and accept that something has happened. So for example, you know, I went into the shower and had a shower and smashed it up in about the second week because I was so angry at uh, fate, I think it was, I was trying to work out why I was being so angry. And of course, anger is a completely justifiable feeling and i worked out i was angry at fate how hell has fate dealt us this blow what have we done why you know how can you rob a child of her life all those sorts of things and it makes you angry um and i didn't do it again but you know it made me think well you know i'm gonna have an anger anger's gonna be around and, and i suppose in some respects it still is and, and it comes from from that so i have to recognize that that's around and then there are times when you will you're so desperate in the early stages when you're it has to be said for people who are newly bereaved it is trauma it's it's a physical trauma that does leave you it will leave you but even that is hard letting go because if you let it go then somehow you're letting your child go or the person you're grieving go because the trauma's going and it's proof again that they have gone in a very physical way. And that's very hard, but that does sort of happen. And then you might have one day, well, someone will say something funny. We had a friend who came down, an actress, and she's just sort of real grown up, you know, amongst actors are quite childlike, I suppose. <laughs> Some would say childish. And she made us laugh. And that was, that happened. And then he might laugh again the next day, or then he might have a few days of not feel as good and then a really bad day and then a really good day and then for quite good days and then a brilliant day that goes wrong at the end I mean it's always the pattern is it's like a jazz pattern not a 4 4 pattern and it changes and and that's great that's fine so when people say we well, must feel like this at this point we should feel like this at this point then you're going to feel like that I just don't I don't subscribe to it I think it's really it's just answering a question because we all grieve differently, and so much so that when we had a sort of therapy session in our documentary, we did it and was wonderful. Julia Sam started UK and is a brilliant psychotherapist and wonderful person who we knew. Uh, we realised that Clara and I had slightly different recollections of the day itself. Uh, one of the more you know difficult details of me giving more CPR trying to. Revive her. I thought I was on my own talking to the person on the other end of the emergency services. But Clara said, No, I was there. I was in the room. And it, I did remember she was standing in the door, standing in the doorway. Uh, so, you know, that's interesting that our, our recollections were different. And it's kind of you just sort of keep an eye on each other if you're a couple and you're at a different rate. Also, there's different ways about thinking about Clara's parents and, wife and my parents. My dad was very cross with the hospital and wrote letters, and that was his way of, I think, Bastard he, he was a scientist. And so that was his way. Um, and other people in the family sort of made resolutions and did things that they, yeah, I mean, that's that, like, that's another story I can't talk about, but they should be changed then, certainly. Um, and I suppose, again, it's, it's like trying to be open keep an eye on yourself and the people around you and the main thing is to be kind to yourself and not expect too much of yourself if you're a man you can't fix it there's no way you can go and i'm being very stereotypical here and, 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 and perhaps i shouldn't be but often men try and fix things i mean there are jokes talking about husbands and wives where you know the husband is he just wants to fix it when the wife wants just wants to be heard you know i mean there are diff- different ways of looking at it but the thing is you can't expect too much of yourself if you particularly if you lost a child you know or you, when your parents have died you're allowed you have the privilege to be because of the suffering and pain you're in you have the privilege to be able to be a bit crap at things not get things right get them wrong in our work you know sometimes we've got a whole rehearsal period you try and get it wrong as many times because then you know what's right and if you don't know what's wrong, you haven't explored. You've got to explore and be brave. And a lot of that in grief, I think, is about exploring your own feelings and looking around and the other people's and talking to them. It's very difficult. Some people don't want to talk. And I can't say that I'm a, you know, I always find it easy. But I also know that whenever Clara and I touch base and talk about Maud and her mm-hmm. loss and making the documentary, however harrowing it was, we are always closer always and that isn't always the case with couples it's hard often couples split up and again i can understand it's so difficult it's not about blame it's not about anything it might be about different breathing i thought i was i knew this person she used to be absolutely fine you know why isn't he feeling these things so if you don't have conversations around it you, you say well of course i'm feeling things i just can't talk about it I find it too hard that line called Derek or whatever is doesn't talk about the war. Why would you share some of those horrible things that happened with other generations? You know, that's his view, you know. But maybe that other generation will do want to hear. So, you know, I think that uh, having conversation helps to heal all that stuff. But it's hard. It's always exhausting. Every time we went to slow in the morning, we were lying down in the afternoon. And even like we're talking to now, I mean, I'll have to have a for an hour just. Sitting around, minute, because it, it's hard, even even now, twelve years on, to um, you know, recollect particularly, uh, but um, but also very rewarding that one is able to pass on some of some of the experiences and help other people. So,
0: and I think on that, you know, just some of the key messages you've said. So, grief affects us physically as well as emotionally and psychologically. There are theories out there about stages of grief, but actually they're not prescriptive, not just in your experience, but also with every other guest I think we've had on this podcast in three years and everybody I've spoken to in my work, in my years of work in hospice care and end-of-life care and bereavement care, that they're not prescriptive and might not come in the same order. And on that, grief's not predictable. No. No. And I think the other key message and the big one, which was in my question, Jason, as well, was that it's going to be hard navigating through this with your direct, immediate family, because you're all going to be having different experiences, because grief's unique to the individual. And I, I think that's easy for me to say but I think it's one of the hardest things in practice to realize as you're saying well why why is he okay today what you know or should you know what do you mean you're going back to work and yeah I think it's that message of everybody's going to experience it in their own way
1: yeah and that yeah yeah and that thank you that that was a great summation of what I, I I've just spoken about, and also it's, it's it's good to hear that I'm not alone. My view on that. So, particularly about you know the, the so called um, stages of grief. I took Bessie. so Bessie was four, and Morty was two and a half. So I I took Bessie to a gymnastics group that she was went to within the first ten days. I suppose it was, and at the, the, the beginning of each session. They all sat round in a ring with their legs out, like in a sort of what's called a piked position. And just in a ring, like the children that they were and the coach was telling them about what they would be doing. And I did just think, she's lost her sister. You know, this little girl down there on these mats. And that was really hard. And she was quite subdued, you know. She was quite quiet, I think, Bessie. And, you know... we were always worried that she would go into herself, not to communicate, not talk, and not talk about more, not talk about emotions and feelings, because the horror of it, it was the trauma of it uh, uh, affected her in, in such a way. And then we went not long after that to Buckingham Palace. There were lots of photographs. So standing outside Buckingham Palace on a school trip. And that time was so bizarre uh, when I think about it. I can't even remember too much about it or. I was just desperate and uh, trying to do my best for her and whilst, as I say, trying to read what was on in her mind and maybe there was a bit of, you know, let's make this better and you you can't really, you have to recognise what it is and try and find a way through. And I suppose that was her way of briefing was she would be quiet for a bit but she, you know, then she sort of, we talked a lot about it. We always included her and now she talks about it now she's... She's a 15 year old and a girl and it's a nightmare, but like all 15 year olds, I think, um, but that's good. But she obviously, she does have, she has issues herself, which we are helping out to support it with. And she is getting support for, you know, which directly come out of the loss of her sister. So, um, there is a continual thing and I'm answering the question again, you know, in, in a way I'm just showing you that people do breathe in different ways. But you know, if, if you're a if you're a husband and you listen to him now, and again, you don't have to solve it, you know, you're probably right. Practically what can I do? And and sorry, I'm probably being completely sexist here, but you know, a lot of a lot of women feel that they may feel responsible for the home, they may feel responsible for their work and their home. And wherever they are, you know, I would encourage listening more than telling, you know. Um I think that's always good. And and share, you know, so often a bit like this, no, you should do that because you're feeling like that. Well, if you're feeling like that, go and do that. I think that's a simplistic way of of doing things. And and talking is the the best thing that you can do, I think, and not trying to fix things, let things run their course. It's difficult because we're all constrained by things you've got to do, work and, you know, all those sorts of things. You know, I'd say it is quite a gift to be able to read a book, a really good book, and to get some wisdom from it. And then face your own grief. There's a really wonderful book um, about the death of a child, and it's it's about their writers writing about the loss of their loved ones, often children. And because they're writers, they're incredibly eloquent and they do hit home. Go, God, yeah, that's exactly. I felt that. And that's an enormous comfort. Uh, So, things like that, I would urge. And I think it is called the Death of. I might actually try and I've ordered it for. I think it's sort of out of print, unbelievably. um But I've ordered some copies for these two people I'm seeing at the moment, for myself because I, I can't find mine. But I remember reading that at the time. For example, and that was a good book. It wasn't a self-help book. This is what you do. You know, there are good books that say you may be feeling this, you may be feeling that. That's great, but if you can reach out, speak to someone, they will tell you, and that's you know, they will tell you. And that's always a good, good thing.
0: Every five minutes, someone in the UK dies without the care and support they need. It's time for change. With your support, we can help more people get the care they urgently need. Visit maricurey.org.uk forward slash daffodil to donate to Marie Curie's Great Daffodil Appeal today. You mentioned at the beginning about, um, about sort of, people, publics, um, fear around having these conversations like you and I are having now. And I just wondered what some of the reactions were from those around you when Maud died. So I'm not talking about your direct family, her grandparents, her relatives, but actually were colleagues or people you know or neighbours, et cetera.
1: Yeah, well, I think we had a neighbour who moved since... Recent, i remember one of the members didn't really know very well but they arrived they were there at the funeral and that's really that 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 really i mean that for a start really meant something. that they you know it's a simple thing isn't it and i well i don't need to recommend that i'm just saying that and it was very easy and feeling supported even though we didn't know each other very well it meant a lot and then the people who did know very well my best man was absolutely wonderful and his family Just helping with arrangements, Um, you know. Just briefly talking practically about stuff. He was absolutely brilliant because he would he would say, "Listen, I've been speaking to you know we chose on someone to conduct the uh, funeral and who we're going to use." And he said, "Well, there's this group and this group. These do this; those do that. Choose between the two. That was it. It was going to be a choice of two things. There's nothing else to think about." using like this whole array of funeral directors there's a recommendation from somebody and so we were able to do that then there were other practical things so he acted as a buffer in a way you know there were things like having to tell clara about the results of the autopsy things like that which were really which i you know obviously i had to do then there was lots and lots that, that i did do and had to do and clara had to do things as well and, but there was, I was a friend there to do some of that practical stuff. So you know, he said, "Is it okay if I do this?" I so you do you do as much work as you can. I really hope I can do this for somebody one day. So you see, do as much of it as you can. And say, listen, I've looked into this. I've done this. Is how it works. You can do this, or you can do that. What do you want to do? Or well, you know, think about it. Come mm-hmm. back to me when you've got some headspace. So, and then you say, well, you we need to make a decision about that sort of now. Can I think you should do this. And I'll go, okay. Just someone to help because obviously one's talking to one's partner about it. And, you know, they may not want to know too much, you know, because so much is going on. So that was particularly wonderful. And then our friend Gillian just bought loads of soup, chicken soup, cakes coming along unannounced, which is all right, actually, because I think there were Lara's parents were with us i'm trying to remember actually and so there was often somebody with us and then they would open the door and let them minister sold up with a cake and they used to listen you know um ollie and rebecca are here or, or you know or you know or, or mark's mark's over julie and they've brought a cake do you, do you want to see them and they, okay yeah and they come down and sit on the bed and talk um and hug and all those things and they might listen or you know so and some people i mean one guy uh friends just sat on the end of the bed and he didn't know he could tell he just didn't want to say he, he, he just found it incredibly difficult and then other people were just there and didn't say much and you could see that it was fine he we thought well no they didn't know what to say and there isn't much to say but the fact that he was there and present helped so i don't know what the answer is fully but having somebody with you can help you filter things in a way or that that, that was practically it's quite a, a nice thing so and then some people sort of disappeared, well, disappeared, but you can say they found it incredibly difficult and impossible. And even now, you get less so people say, I'm really sorry that I'm, I and mean, we got a letter from a lovely guy, and I, 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 I need to get back to him. It's really bad. A few years later, saying, I'm really sorry. I wish I'd spoken to you about it when we would be our dogs that time. Or I saw you and I didn't come over and to you, or whatever, you know, or we met, but we're about what happened there. Um, and you, I don't, you know, I don't care. I'm sorry he feels bad he shouldn't feel bad because it's so difficult but you know it, it, it's so you can't expect too much of anybody else be grateful for those that are and thank those that are helping I suppose that's the thing oh that's really great gosh yeah thank you it's making such a difference and they go great and i just keep doing it some people can see that and others can't it's an extraordinary situation and who knows might bring up all sorts of feelings of their own grief and, you know, in loss of their parent or the, whatever it is, or their child, of course. But um, there might be, you know, difficult histories for them. So, but those people who do, it's great and it's wonderful. Um, and if you are that sort of person who likes doing that and is able to do it,
0: then do, gosh, do, you know. I think also you've touched on something there with with regards to the practical side of things so you know for those listening who uh, know someone who is grieving the death of a child or just grieving uh, the death of anyone um, and are fearful or scared about talking with that person or approaching that person or contacting that person because they feel like they don't know what to say they're left feeling helpless they don't want to get it wrong they don't want to upset them they don't want to say the wrong thing then actually you don't have to say anything but what you can do is is make some soup yeah yeah or you can do something practical and yeah. that can feel loving and supportive, and absolutely. all of those things as well. And so, you don't have to be kind of waving any magic wands, um, it's just showing up, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And again, it's sort of, I think, you know, if you do try and wrap it up in a ribbon and say exactly the right thing, it's going to be difficult, you know, even you know, I mean. Maybe we'll write a one day. I don't know. Or things that help, that, you know, practical things. You can see, you know, is there anything? Can I help with anything practically? Is there, any, is there any paperwork or is there anything like that that I can look at? You know, we had a friend who wanted to have a bench on the heath and she said, I'll do that. She went off and spoke to the Corporation of London. She went through all the process. Yeah. You know, she did it, you know, and she's bonded with us for life because because of that. But things like that, the practical stuff. And in a way, you could say that that's in a way a way in, isn't it? Because you're starting conversation, you know, is there anything I can do? That might lead you into a conversation. Totally. Yeah. And then you're opening up an emotional conversation. So it's a sort of way, it's sort of saying, you know, I'm available. I'm here practically. And obviously, here I am for anything else. And maybe in time, you know, they will listen to you but listening is the listening is is the big one i think but yeah soup and cape was a you know food and go do the shopping that's that's the no-brainer isn't it mm-hmm. And looking after the children you no know, i think that happens well that um Bessie was taken off to friends and started from the head overnight sometimes and then up at, uh their mind laws and so there was people were looking after them i mean you could almost say that if you can work things out practically or if there is something that can be done, which perhaps in other cultures is more there's more of a template that everybody knows if that's the right word. But certainly in this country, maybe there isn't, maybe there isn't that but maybe, you know, certainly wasn't in our family religious aspect to it. But there was a lot of love, a lot of working stuff out. And the practical side of it is really does happen because that's something you can all everyone focus on as well. You know, it's a sort of relief from the grieving and a relief from that uh, you know we're grieving in the right way uh, you know is it when's it going to end our lives have completely changed how are we ever going to continue the world's still spinning you go, well, why hasn't it stopped why hasn't it stopped this our child has died how can it why, what what people going on a bus there why, why are they doing that um, don't they realize and I think you but it, it is by increments and practical things that can help you gosh I mean think but you can imagine, you know things like what socks am I going to wear today or what your trousers I'm thinking about that now you know you see bloody matter what you're going to wear you know it's sort of in a way it didn't but then in a way it did because you're then starting to get back into life and starting to be practical and all those things begin to become your new normality but we keep saying but practical things are it's 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 interesting that isn't it as a not trying to find the best words to say of comfort you know other than just giving love and holding them to just those practical things it's it's showing you love isn't it
0: i think you you talked earlier which not many people do talk about um, or it doesn't come up very often um, but you've just described it there as well with um with that um Sort of not knowing what socks to wear or trousers to wear, and that's the confusion that can come with grief as well, and how that can impact. And I think that that's linked to that. Just, I just want to um, I, I want to ask a couple of more things, Jason, which are kind of, which are sort of slightly off track, but I, I want to ask one more thing linked to grief, please, if that's okay. And this can be present day or in the past, but. Uh, what brings you comfort?
1: Um, well, I not answer in two ways. I think comfort is when you know we're all round this table as we were last weekend uh, on Mother's Day, and there were you know three generations plus this his boyfriend from another family, and if I'd had my older boys with me from my first marriage to Caroline, who I was talking to before I spoke to you, that would have been even better but they're the things that bring me they bring me joy and comfort and clara would say the same thing my wife would say the same thing so they bring comfort because you go you know there's some people love each other and we're all. it's complicated nothing straightforward but we're all here together um and that's that does bring um, that brings a lot of a lot of comfort um and what else what is in the truck door? you know I wish I read more you know I, I'll keep buying all these books I don't I'm dyslexic so it's, it's always I've got much better at reading and I suppose you know going out to dinner simple things like that are really great and spending time with my children is good and I have to say I do like work I'm very lucky that I did a radio play a week or so ago with some people that we had luckily jim gore ben toby jones you know don warrington many people i'd worked before and were with before mark frost and we were a sort of group of you know we, we bump into each other all the time we're friends and we, i'm friends with some of them anyway But that does give me i do enjoy my work luckily particularly that it's enjoyable so that that does weirdly give me a lot of comfort and it does give me purpose and it it satisfies my artistic needs as well you know my creative needs like that makes me happy gives me comfort and i love cycling as well so i love sort of hammering away on my exercise bike till i'm you know blue in the face and then i also like going out and cycling and stuff like that that gives me comfort yeah
0: thank you So if it's okay, Jason, I'd like to move on to the second part of the podcast. One of our other aims and one of our other messages is what we do know is for people who are living with a terminal illness, for example, that. If there are open conversations about death and dying, and again, these can be very practical conversations, then the outcome for those left behind can be different. So that's linked to preparing and preparation. And some of those practical ways of doing that might be writing a will, organizing a funeral, because what happens? time and time again is we will have families where someone's died and they're having to manage the finances, the will, and the funeral with no conversations having happened beforehand. Um, and they're also trying to manage their grief and their loss and they're in that early stage, as you talked about before, that you feel like this cotton wool wrapped around you, around your ears, more of a kind of muffled rather than protected. Yes, yeah. So on that, can I ask, do you think about your own death?
1: I do. And my father passed away in June and I was in that boat of organising the funeral. And he had made some preparations and a will, et cetera, and stuff, but, but hadn't made others. And I, I have a brother, but he's, um, he, he has issues. So it, it means that I had to do. A lot of that and that was i found that very hard and i think if i'm honest i'm still not i've cried once um and uh, briefly and about the loss of my dad and uh, i think a lot of that was taken up with me practically doing all those things and dealing with the estate oh. and there's still lots of stuff to be done which i i have to do and i'm a bit behind on so I found that incredibly difficult to do, having said all that stuff about grieving about my daughter, you know it's a hard place to be wherever it is, wherever grief lies, um although I mean the loss of Maud was cataclysmic, and losing my father was incredibly sad. he was ninety and he had a wonderful life, and we loved him very much, and it was in the natural order of things, so you always end up looking like your dad, don't you? And I would see a lot of my old friends in school and my old, my old football team in Hounslow and uh, all of them look like their dads. And when I, when I arrived, I, I walked in, they are all there. I said a few minutes later, I said, oh gosh, am, am I in the care? And uh, not the pub, which went down really well, actually. Um, I don't know if that's an appropriate joke, but anyway, but uh, it went down well, but they look like their dads. So, you know, you're heading there. And then of course you are going to sort of slide off the end. I mean. I think I hope but a reasonably emotional person and also quite a practical person, equally organised and disorganised. But I suppose open and I'm I'm trying to be honest with you how I feel. So I, you know, irrationally I'm I know I am certain that I'm going to see more when I die. So I am. It's just going to happen. I've decided that that is going to happen, and that's a really wonderful feeling, and it's utterly illogical. But I have, I I will. I mean, when, and when people pass away, they know, I, you know, I say, or their child, they'll be saying, sitting up there on a cloud, looking down on us and laughing. I mean, there might well be, and but who who knows? But I feel even more strongly that I will see her, and I'm not a particularly religious person, so that's a kind of comfort because I need it. <laughs> I suppose I've manufactured it because I need I, I need that comfort, because it's scary passing away. Again, I I'll do thing practically. And now what I know I really want to do is I do want to tell my children my experience of life and what has helped me and what I value. And I'm lucky that, I hope this doesn't sound too pompous, but I've done one or two bits of work that I've been so very proud of. And um, I hope that, you know, they can look at that and go, gosh, you know, the possibilities of what one could do by doing something you love and doing it well that's work of course Uh, and then you know life and other things and gosh you know i've made mistakes and some good things and bad things you know one's never perfect but i'd like to share somehow and i'm still working on that you know how how i would do that whether i just write them all down in a little book and just leave them and and write something i don't take any seriously but there it is you know we talk a lot anyway my older boys, I'm thinking of particularly at the moment. Um, as young men, you know, it's a hard journey at the moment, I think, for young people. Um, so we always talk about stuff and coping mechanisms and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so my mortality, my sense of mortality is tempered a little by being able to pass on things, not monetarily, but, you know, spiritually, I suppose. And I'm less fearful of death than I used to be, actually. I, I'm awful at risk. You know, you never ever see me on a fair. I'll never go on a roller coaster, and I'm, you know, I'm risk averse. And and I'm, I'm I take a lot of risk at work, but you're in a, a secure environment, I suppose. But I'm I'm risk averse in part because of more I always catastrophize things as well. So that's why I'd never go in there on a because I thought I'd, I'd die on a roller coaster you know, and I hate heights and things like that. But passing away, I'm less concerned about it now, and I think. If I were to be, you know, if it were imminent, I'm thinking about somebody else we've just heard about has been struggling with, with cancer, actually, uh, which I didn't know. If I, you know, put myself a little bit in, you know, how can you, but what he must be thinking, about how hard that is, I think I'd still feel the same way. I, I'd still want to let everybody know that I loved them and that that I could pass something on to them and face whatever was coming with a sense of, reciprocal appreciation and, and love it's so easy to use the word love but it, it really is everything isn't it a warm and love and care isn't it um and compassion i think compassion is my favorite word not in a you know linton cards way but in a real sense and we talked earlier about practical even practical things that is showing compassion so reciprocal compassion is so important and i think if I was raging against the dying of the light, I would be in a good... I wouldn't be raging. I think I'd be happily moving that way. Um, so, yes, it's easier, isn't it, to think, oh, I, I'm less fearful of dying, but, and, you know, she think about it and perhaps that it was round the corner. That would be my way, I think, of trying to find meaning and comfort and all those things. It's very hard, you know, about my father, you know, he she was adopted and, you know, he didn't know his didn't know father while... He, knew his um, birth mother, who I never really met. Um, So I hope we gave him a bit of, you know, comfort towards the end of his life. And we certainly were able to talk to him, I suppose, on the day he passed away in the afternoon. I didn't think he was going to die, actually. We thought he might even go back home, but it happened quickly and we weren't there. But we were there relatively soon before, so and we got to say some nice things. And some funny things. Um, so I hope that that would happen if I was, that would help me with my passing.
0: Is legacy something that's important to you? Like how you'd be remembered?
1: Legacy for me is leaving something behind that is meaningful. So I feel that it's memory, isn't it? And when we think about Maud, we, we think that she's alive in our memory. You know, when Maud died, we had a wonderful counselor come to see us from the local council. And he said two things. One was, what is death? Which we wanted to lamp him at that because, it, it, yeah, it seems such a obvious thing to say, but it, it's true. It's, what is it? You know, what is passing from one place to another? Or what is the absence and et cetera? But he also said, you know, that she's alive in your memories. And I'll always remember that. And it's true that, so I would hope that my legacy is to do with something to do with that—that that I'm alive in in my family's memory, and I'm lucky because you know they'll be able people be able to see me on the telly and see some of the stuff I've done and see me doing that. But I'd I'd like them also to picture me in memory, so that would be my legacy. I think you know all, you know all the other stuff. You know it doesn't really matter, does it? You know leave you know, you a bit of cash, I suppose, along the way. But you know is that floats your boat you've got to make your own really in a way but um yeah that, that uh everybody knows what i value is is a legacy i mean i'm going to say something very arrogant and convenient now but i've got a few well i say it, i've got a few awards so and they're nice things to have and it's a very nice feeling to feel that you've been appreciated by your peers and you've i'm very very lucky but uh I, and i went to give some duke vanderborough awards well you know i just wonder why are you <laughs> but in a way you think, well they, they are because, you know, I enjoy what I do and this has got me here. Anyways, but um and I like giving back and I like helping young people and um, teaching them as well as doing my own work. Anyway, so and I said, well, if you could bring something along, please do so. Of course I bought my BAFTA for best actor, but I also bought a letter that I got from the parent, which was from a father, from a husband and a father of children. And the letter was a little handwritten letter. And he didn't give his name or address. He just said something along the lines of, Dear Jason, I'm a, I've been a fan of your work uh, for a long time now. But I just wanted you to know that all the things that you do about raising awareness of sepsis and talking about what's happened to you in your life and how that helps me as a father and many other other fathers you will never know. Thank you, thank you. That was it. And that's the most valuable item I think I've got apart from things that my wife has bought me or I bought her or and things that Maud has and other things that are connected to my children. So the BAFTAs are great, but that is the most valued thing I have. So that would be my legacy. It's what's possible. Who knows whether I've got any effect? I mean, that's one person's opinion. I don't know. I hope so. But just to have something like that and so, you know, if you want, that's what you can do with your life, you know. And I know I'm talking a lot now, but it's, a bit, it's a, bit like, a bit like work sometimes in that I worked on a job once where the director said, listen, if you want to keep a little book of all your ideas or a list of smells or, you know, things that might help you with your character or the way he walks and to write them all down or these days if you do it with videos and all sorts of stuff and make a new collection, do it. And I thought, well, fascinating. Yeah, I think, oh, yeah, I like the idea. And I I'd sort of occasionally, sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't. But it's it's all about what you put into it, isn't it? You don't have to. Do, they should go and learn your lines and turn up and hope it sits. You could do all that stuff, and it's kind of quite. It feels very creative. So you don't always have to just fulfil the brief. So the possibilities for things are are what, are what are sometimes a lot up to you. That might be Alexi.
0: I know you said at the beginning of this, but we just started talking about legacy. Um, You were talking about um, wanting to impart information and um, some of your experiences to your sons and your children. And um, actually, I think from what you've just described, I just want to say they're seeing it now now jason you know and they're watching and observing and listening and hearing because i'm sure what you're describing is what they see in action and um and i think i think that's just quite a nice thing to remember anyway my last question is how has it been being on this podcast today
1: oh i love being, love being on the podcast
0: yeah yeah I could talk
1: about it forever, as you could probably tell. you know it does engage your your mind you know it's a sort of poetic process in a way i i would I would say in some ways because you're going you're trying to go to the very edge of your imagination and you try not to come up with lots of platitudes. you're really trying to um explore in your you know excellent questioning and your listening, Jason is that you know you're able to talk quite deeply i hope about things and hope that that connects with people that's what we're doing this for is to connect with people offer comfort and context and meaning and all those things at, at a time that is very difficult uh, and, and 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 also hopefully to inspire people to support the work of Marie Curie so you know it's nice to be able, because sometimes you have to, you're doing quite soundbitey things because you don't have time it's always nice to have time so it's been wonderful to be able to talk deeply about what I care about and to recall Maud particularly and to share a bit of my life and hope that that does offer some comfort to people.
0: Well Jason Watkins thank you for joining me on the Marie Curie couch thank you for sharing some of your experiences which I am sure will have an impact for those listening and thank you for sharing some of Maud and her story and um, your other children and the rest of your family. And it's been lovely to meet you.
1: Oh, and you, Jason. Thank you so much. So
0: lovely to talk to you. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death, and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help from planning ahead to coping with bereavement. You can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. The podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. The music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.